0: Most of us, I think, are familiar uh, with the name Vincent van Gogh. Van Gogh was one of, the, one of history's great painters. But the thing that he's probably most famous for had nothing to do with painting. A story that I remember learning maybe in elementary school or middle school. Do you know this story? What Vincent van Gogh did to himself? He cut off his own ear. Did you know that? Two years before he died, he. he took a razor and cut off his left ear, wrapped it up in paper, and delivered it to a woman that he had acquaintance with. Now, it's been a mystery ever since as to why he would have done this. Some people think that this was his attempt to impress this woman, which is, that's one way to impress a woman, I guess. She fainted, she wasn't so much impressed. Some people thought maybe he had hallucinations or that he was was furiously jealous of another painter's success and it drove him mad. We don't know what the reason is, but we do know that it was an extreme thing to do, right? We hear that story, and it makes us shudder to think about. I mean, nobody, as far as I know, nobody, nobody wakes up in the morning. You've never woke up in the morning and thought, you know, my head is a little too symmetrical. I wonder what it would look like without one of these, you know? like that. Just It's an extreme thing to do. That's why that story follows Van Gogh around. It's his legacy. But, you know, we come to Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus. And Jesus calls us to do something every bit as extreme. I mean, he says it. We just read it. Matter of factly, Jesus says, you might, you might need to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand in order to keep from going to hell. That's what it seems like he's saying. Now, Jesus made a lot of shocking statements, but this has got to go right up there with, with, at the top, right? I mean, this is, this is about a shocking and disarming of a statement. My goodness, did I, just, did I just read that? Is he being literal? Well, let me share some good news with you up front. Jesus is not being literal here in Matthew chapter 5, at least not right here. He's not speaking literally, but he is trying to communicate extreme seriousness. He's trying to communicate something that is absolutely vital for us to understand and apply to our lives. And I think we'll see that as we go. Uh, If you were with us last week, we put our our sermons on the the website, by the way. But if you were here last week, um, Jesus addressed... our misunderstanding when it comes to the command not to murder. Jesus spoke of the command, you shall not murder, which is from the Old Testament, from the Ten Commandments, but he helped us to see it not as just an external action, but as the seed of something that already exists within our heart. Murder is the extreme outcome, but the seeds of anger and hatred and contempt exist for most of us already in our heart. Jesus showed us that. Well, today we see the same format that Jesus is going to take the issue of idolatry, I'm sorry, of adultery, and and he's going to make it clear just like he did before. He's going to make it clear that this is not ultimately an external issue. It is, but deeper than that, it occurs first and foremost in the heart. And even if it never explodes into the outward and obvious sin, if the seeds are in the heart, then they are every bit as sinful and they've got to be dealt with. Okay? He's going to speak to the issue of adultery and lust here. Look at verse 27 again. Matthew five twenty-seven. Jesus is speaking with his disciples. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, real quickly, where did the disciples hear that? Where would they have heard that? This is from the Ten Commandments. This is from Exodus chapter 20 that Moses carried down from the mountain. This is one of the big ones. Just like you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not engage in sexual relationship with someone who is not your spouse. Pretty clear, pretty simple, but then Jesus takes it a step further. 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So same as last week, Jesus is not going to let us get by with just saying, "I've I've never cheated on my spouse, therefore I'm good. Box checked. No, Jesus takes us below the surface to get to the heart of that command To show us that the seeds, if that makes sense, the seeds that exist in the soil of the human heart, those seeds of adultery are every bit as sinful. Those are still sin issues in God's eyes. Okay, now I want to just give us some quick context here. It's interesting if you notice this, that Jesus is exclusively talking to men here. Is there any significance in that? Um, more than likely as Jesus, you know, in, in Matthew five, Jesus says he went up that uh, Matthew says that Jesus went up onto the mountain and he brought his disciples to him and he began to teach them. Okay. It's entirely possible, maybe even likely that his audience was exclusively men. And in this case, it would make sense, but it's also, there's a cultural reality at work here that in the ancient, uh, middle East, in the time of Jesus, um, Men were given dignity. Women were not. That's just the way it was. That was the culture. Uh, Men were held in high esteem. Women were considered property, okay? And so, even though it was against the law of God to commit adultery, in this culture, a man who committed adultery could generally get away with it or get away with a very light punishment. He could be excused because he had a high rank within the society. Whereas a woman, if a woman committed adultery, she'd be put to death. She got no benefit of the doubt, okay? And so there is, there's, a, there's a power structure at work here that Jesus is speaking to men primarily, and in this case exclusively, because of the way that things were, okay? And often still the way that things are. Now, that doesn't mean that this sermon does not apply to women, okay? I, and I hope that, that uh, ladies, you, you, you know, we're not gonna get into a lot of particulars today, but I hope that you'll take this to heart because it does apply, But Jesus is speaking here primarily to men, and so we dig into it with that in mind. Everyone who looks at a woman, Jesus says. Or to broaden it, if you look at another person, male or female, if you look at another person with lust for them, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. What does Jesus mean by look? If you look at someone, what does that mean? Is looking itself sinful? Is that the sin? Um, The looking is not the primary issue here, I want you to know. And here's what we can get ourselves into, and, and Christians throughout history at times have been bad about this, that we can take a verse like this and say, human sexuality is itself a bad thing. It's an evil and dark and ugly thing. We should never talk about it. We shouldn't engage in it with the lights on, right? I mean, like, you, you, you don't address this issue as having any goodness or merit to it. It's bad. Some people used to think that the original, the original sin in the Garden of Eden, was that Adam and Eve had sex. Not that they disobeyed God and ate from the fruit. That was the original sin. That's what some people have thought. Okay? So let me make it very clear that this is not Jesus' teaching here, that somehow human sexuality is itself a bad thing. No. God created sex, not just for procreation. He created it to be enjoyed. It's a good thing. Okay? That's not what looking means here. Somehow looking is bad because sex is bad. And Jesus is certainly not saying that looking at someone, the act itself, is the sin, that you can't look. Uh, There were monks at one point in history that that in order to obey this text, they walked around town with their eyes on the ground so that they would be prohibited from looking at a woman. And of course, they would run into things and they had bruises on top of their heads. I'm not joking when I say that. Okay? Because they misunderstood Jesus' point. He's not saying that the looking is a sin. What he says is, everyone who looks with lust has committed adultery. This means that you fixate on someone and you make that person an object of lust. That's the problem, that's the point. And so the real heart of the issue, the the, the issue at stake here is not looking so much as it is looking with lust, it's lust. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says lust? Uh, Very important that we understand lust to be more than just sexual attraction or physical attraction. That is part of it, but that's not always the the root of it. In fact, I think it's rarely the root of it. That when Jesus talks about lust right here, he's talking about a, a desire to consume. It's much deeper than just what our eyes see and what our feelings feel. It's a desire to consume. This word lust is the same word that was sometimes used for greed and idolatry in the Bible. It is an abusive desire to control to possess something that does not belong to you, okay? That's what lust is. Um, now, how do, we, how do we understand that? Okay, qu- let me give you a quick scenario, okay? Let's say that I walk out to the mailbox one day, and in the mailbox is a Victoria's Secret catalog. That, that happens from time to time, perhaps. What, what should I do? What should Pastor Kyle do in this situation? Well, I should take it and go throw it away, Right? really dramatically throw it away. So make sure my wife can see me throw it away, okay? And then dump coffee grounds on it and then burn the whole trash can, right? That's what I should do. Make it real dramatic. Um, Now why, why should I do that? Well, here's the truth, and this is my opinion, but I'm, you know, I feel pretty confident when I say this. That stuff is soft pornography, okay? It does not belong in our house. It doesn't belong in anybody's house. Uh, I don't need to see that stuff. My kids certainly don't need to see that stuff. And so, I throw it away. Now, having thrown it away in this scenario, I then proudly declare that I have won the battle against lust for the day. Right? <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. Because, listen, that, that is an issue of lust. Right? That there is all sorts of potential in that catalog to be a catalyst for something that ought not to be. for, for an, Something in my heart, right, it needs to be done away with so that the temptation is not there. Right? That's, that's one level of lust, but it's only one level. It's not the totality. It's not somehow a victory for me that I just threw it away. It might be a small victory, but it's not the ultimate battle that's at stake here, because lust is not merely a physical attraction that just goes a little too far. Lust is deeper than that. It's a deep-seated desire to possess, to use someone for my own perverse desire, It's deeper than just that. Okay? That's what makes lust so dangerous, is that it's not merely physical, a physical exchange or a physical look. It goes deeper than that, and y'all, this is why pornography is so dangerous. Okay? And, I, and I'm going to talk about it for just a minute because it's so rampant, we've got to talk about it. What makes pornography so dangerous is not just the existence of it in the physical sense that it exists, that it's a, it's a click away on a computer or a phone or whatever else. That's really not the problem. Even secular scientists, people who are not Christians, they're not coming from a biblical perspective, they are, they've been crying out now for years about the harmful effects and influences of pornography, about the fact that it, that it rewires the human brain, that it poisons our relationships, that it promotes aggression and abuse, uh, especially in men how prevalent it is among children, how growing, uh, the, the, a growing prevalence among women, that it is something that is a poison to our society. Now, that's not a Christian perspective. That's simple psychology and biology. But from the Christian perspective, of course, we step across a serious line. We don't just talk about how bad it is psychologically and socially. From the Christian perspective, pornography, we look at it as something that truly, it undermines every single good thing God created sexuality to be. All of it. Every good thing that God intended for our sexuality to be, it objectifies people who are made in the image of God. It turns them into objects who are less than worthless in our eyes. It removes relationship and commitment and love and sacrifice. It removes all those things from the equation. All the things that make for good, genuine, healthy relationship, it takes them away. It perverts them. All the things that give true value to you as a human being and to another human being. It eradicates those things. It perverts them. It seeks a cheap and empty fulfillment at the expense of another person. It is not a victimless crime because of what it does, not just to the person, but also to the people who uh, are, are uh, acting it out. It, everything about it is a perversion of God's goodness. Now, if we just treat all of that, pornography or any, or any form of lust, if we treat it only on the physical term only in the looking and the thinking, and, you know, it's just, it's purely physical, then we miss what Jesus actually says about it. Does Jesus treat it as an outward issue? He says this is an issue of the heart. He He calls it adultery of the heart. It's a heart issue. It's a spiritual issue. That's why most people, especially Christians, on the other side of pornography or lust, on the other side of that, we feel tremendous guilt and shame. Why? Because our heart is confused. Our heart, deep down, we know what sexuality is meant to be, that it's meant to be precious and good and delightful and life-giving, and yet something else has entered into our hearts, and we feel natural guilt and shame. We're meant to feel that because in our hearts we know that it's wrong and it's empty and it's sinful. But it's become an idol in our lives. I mentioned this a minute ago, that the word Jesus uses for lust, it's the same root word that we use for idolatry, uh, focusing our heart and mind on something, something that we think will fulfill us, other than God, and therefore it's an idol. And see, any idol, but especially the idol of lust, this is a, um, a devourer. It's something that no matter how much you feed it, it always wants more. It's a vacuum. No matter how much it sucks up, it constantly wants more. It's never satisfied. And the more you do it, the more desensitized you have to become to it to try to get rid of that guilt and that shame. Something God gives us as a safeguard, and we have to plow right through it if we're going to continue to engage in this. There's a reason we feel the way we feel. It's God's way of saying this is wrong, this is out of bounds. Jesus affirms that adultery is sinful, right? Of course. But he also says the desire for it, even if all it, all it is, it just takes place exclusively in my imagination, even the desire for it will kill you. It condemns you. And if we've ever struggled with, with lust, I suspect all of us have to some degree, if we ever struggle with it, we know what he means. We know that it corrodes. We're committing adultery of the heart. Okay, now I hope it's been... I hope we've clarified how serious this issue is, how seriously God takes it. Just in case you're still wondering if it's that big of a deal, look at the application in verse 29. Listen to what Jesus says we ought to do. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It would be better, Jesus says, to enter into heaven with a deformity than to go to hell with your entire body intact, right? Now, this is called hyperbole. Hyperbole is when we use very extreme language to try to drive home a point. We're not being literal. Jesus is not being literal, but that doesn't mean he's not being serious, okay? Okay. Just because he doesn't literally mean gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, does not mean that somehow we shouldn't take him seriously right here. And it should be obvious that Jesus... How how do you know he's not being literal? Okay. Well, remember what he just said. He's talking not about outward adultery. He's talking about lust that comes from where? He's talking about the heart, right? Now what... And and Jesus is smart. He's smarter than anybody in this room. Jesus knows what he's talking about. right? He He didn't misuse words or terms. Jesus knows that if I gouged out an eye or cut off a hand, that that, nothing, that would not have any effect on the, on the sinfulness of my heart, would it? It would be an outward manifestation of remorse, perhaps, but my heart would go unchanged, and so would yours. Jesus knows that. And so we know he's not being literal here, but he's using this kind of language on purpose to show us how drastically and how urgently we're meant to address this sin. That we're supposed to approach it not that we kind of pacify it and hold on to it. Oh, it's not, you know, I'm not hurting anybody. Everybody does it. No, he says, you cut it out of your life. There's a reason, I think, that Jesus uses the, the eye and the hand when he talks about this. You use your own intuition to figure that out. But the point is, Jesus's point, is that our whole being, our whole being, our heart that we radically, from our heart, that we reject this pursuit of lust. We reject the dark and perverse enjoyment that we think lust will provide for us, and we live instead in a different way. Now, that includes throwing out catalogs. That includes putting filters on your computer or your phone. But we can't stop there. Those are good things to do, and I encourage those things. But you can't stop there. That is, in some sense, like removing a hand or an eye. If you only stopped there, you still have another eye. You still have another hand. You still have a sinful heart. And so you can't stop with the, with the outward surface solution, which I think a lot of us have probably tried. It doesn't work, or it doesn't work ultimately. What do we do? If the heart wants to lust, it's going to find an object to lust over. If it's in my heart, it's going to, it's going to manifest, right? And so the real point that Jesus is making, it's not external. It's an issue of the heart. It's got to be uprooted. Those seeds have to be uprooted. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, to, to show you that, let's look at Colossians chapter 3. If you're really fast, you can turn there, but we're going to put it on our janky screen right here behind me, okay? I lowered the text so that the, you know, it wouldn't be an issue, but... Uh, Colossians chapter 3, all scripture is profitable, all of it's inspired by God. Jesus does not intend to give us the full spectrum of of human sexuality in three verses. So Paul's going to help us to fill in some of the blanks here. Colossians chapter 3, listen to what he says. Verse 1, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, if you are a Christian, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Real quickly here. Paul says, listen, to be a Christian is to be raised to a new plane of being. We are not what we used to be. In fact, Paul says, we have died to what we were. The old self has died, has been buried, and we, in a sense, have been raised again, Romans 6 says, raised again to walk in newness of life. And so if you are a Christian, that means you are in Christ, that you are not associated vicariously with Jesus. You are in Christ. You are part of him, and he is part of you. And so therefore, Paul says, you should seek and pursue the things of Christ, as opposed to the things of this world. Because Jesus is not an add-on to your life. Jesus, Paul says, Christ is our life. He is our consuming desire. He is our Savior. He becomes our everything. He's not an add-on. There's no such way to live. That's not the Christian life. You can't have him in addition to everything else. He becomes the consuming fire, which consumes you. It takes over everything. That's what it's meant to be. Now that's awesome. What does that have to do with lust? Well, look at Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, Paul says, in light of what we just read, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Um, typically, when we talk about lust in the church or in Christian circles, our advice is, our response to it is, hey, it's wrong, quit it. Stop it. Right? Maybe you've heard that before. Probably you've told yourself that before. This is wrong and I've got to stop it. Okay? When did that approach ever work? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm willing to bet that nobody in this room has successfully applied that ideology to your life. It's wrong, and so quit it. All right? It never worked for me. I'm sure it hasn't worked for you either, because that doesn't work. Just knowing something is wrong, even if you feel bad about it, that doesn't give you the power to change. That doesn't transform your heart. And so notice how Paul frames it. Paul says, consider yourselves dead to immorality and purity. That means we shouldn't do it anymore, right? But why? What did he tell us first? Paul didn't start in verse 5. He started back in verse 1. He says, because your identity is now somewhere else. You are not what you were in the way that you used to live. You are fundamentally different now. You are in Christ. You belong to him. He is your life. And so because our life is rooted in Christ, we don't have to seek pleasure and fulfillment somewhere else any longer. That stuff is still on the menu, guys, but you don't have to do it. You have now a resource, and more than just a resource, more than just a a game plan, you've got a person, the very person of God, in you, working on your behalf to bring you out of impurity. We don't have to live this way anymore, because we're meant to continually seek, not the things of the heart, that become idols for us that we fixate on that draw us away from God we're, we're meant to now seek the things that are above where Christ is he is seated at the right hand of God he is the victorious savior over your life you don't have to go back to what you were See, you see what I mean when I say lust is not primarily a physical problem there's a physical aspect to it and we tend to focus on that but it, it, y'all, it's a spiritual problem It's a problem that exists primarily within the heart. It begins in the heart. It's a condition of the heart that desires to consume, and it ends up consuming us. It's not a victimless crime, even if nobody outside of you ever knows about it, because it will consume you, and it will take every good thing out of your heart because that's what an idol will do. Idols don't give what we think they'll give us. They end up taking everything for themselves because it is not God. It's a lowercase g, God, something that we turn lust into, we fixate on it, we're just sure that it's going to meet some need within me that, of course, it never meets, it only ends up in emptiness and despair, because what I'm looking for at the heart level can only be found in Christ. That's why Paul says, if you are in him, if you've been raised up with him, then seek him. It's only logical that everything we are and everything we aspire to be and to have can only be found in in Christ. We're in him. This issue, I hope you see it, it's not a minor issue to God. This is, not, this is not some small issue. Our culture sees no problem with this. Our culture celebrates it, laughs at it, markets it, makes money off of it. Okay? It's all around us. You can't drive down the road, oftentimes, without seeing something that's meant to inflame this desire. Okay? Jesus says, I don't care what the culture says. I don't care if you can get away with it. You've got to drastically cut it out of your heart. It's got to be cut out of your life. Okay. Um, We've got a few minutes here. I want to, I want to paint a picture for us. It, it may seem like I'm changing the subject right here, but I'm not. Okay. Um, I, th- I hope this will help us. Jesus, we, just, we saw it in Matthew 5, Jesus speaks very viscerally. He doesn't mince words. He says, lust is adultery of the heart. It makes us guilty before God, and therefore we've got to tear it out of our lives. You've got to gouge it out of your life. Okay? Paul says, we just saw, Paul says we're dead to it. We're dead to it because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And so we understand the fuller picture of the gospel in the Bible, that Jesus tells us what it is and how drastically we ought to attend to it. It's got to be removed. But Paul then tells us, listen, because Jesus Christ has died and been raised... It's not just something that's wrong that you need to attend to. It's something that Jesus Christ has died to forgive. And because he's died to forgive it, now he gives you the ability to overcome it. So Jesus doesn't just tell us it's wrong. Jesus actually gives us now the power to have victory. Okay? And we need to understand that. This is not a self-will effort that you've got to go out and accomplish on your own. You can't. It's something that Jesus empowers us to do. Um, that's why, let me just, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about, um, marriage here for a minute, because ultimately what Jesus is talking about, don't commit adultery, that is a violation of marriage. And of course, lust is also, even if you're single, it violates either another married person or it violates a future marriage. It violates God's intention one way or the other. Um, when we talk about marriage, we're talking about the place that sexuality has in marriage, When the Bible talks about this, it doesn't single sexuality out as something outside of the rest. It doesn't make it something different, something unique, something that you can separate out, which is what lust tries to do, right? Lust tries to separate out uh, from the rest of my life or from the rest of my marriage or whatever it may be. Lust tries to single it out like it's something different. The Bible says no, it's all one cohesive thing because when the Bible talks about sexuality and marriage, it uses a word that we're, we don't typically use. It's the word covenant. And you, if you've been around the Bible or around church, maybe you've heard that word covenant. Covenant means a binding, lifelong, life-giving promise to another person. It's not, it's not merely signing a contract. That's one form of covenant, perhaps, but it's deeper than that. It's a covenant that takes our heart to seal it, our life to seal it, okay? That's what a covenant is. Y'all think about this. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, right? the very first couple, the first married couple, um, we're told that they, in that, in that moment, became one flesh. Okay? That is not merely a physical term. That's a spiritual term, that they became one flesh. We're told right after that, that a man is meant to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and he and his wife then become one. That's not merely an ex- a, a, you know, a, a fancy biblical way of talking about sexual relationship. It's talking about wholeness. It's talking about a spiritual binding together that's meant to be for life. So we, the reason that God prohibits adultery in the first place, the reason that God, when God talks about sexuality, when the Bible talks about it, It says it's only okay, it's only approved by God if it happens within the context of covenant marriage. The reason for that, or at least one of the reasons is, that that marriage is a covenant, a whole life commitment. It's not just sex. It's not something singled out. It's an entire life commitment. It takes up the whole sphere of who we are, and it fits within that covenant. It's a promise in in, in marital romance and love, it's a, it's a promise to give myself to my spouse, not just to take from her, not just to use her for my own perverse desires. We give ourselves to each other. That's what a covenant does. And, you know, we make those promises at the altar. I don't know if, if, if you're married or if you've been to a wedding. I don't know if you how seriously you, you take these vows. I hope you took them seriously, right? Because we, we said, I promise to love you, to honor you, to serve you, to protect you, I promise to forsake all others, and I will cling to you. I'll be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. Right? That's we're not talking about some some singled out sexual you know, that's true for everything except sex. Right? No, it's it's all part of the, the cohesive whole, it's all part of the promises that we make, and those promises are not conditional. I hope you know that. Listen, when we make those promises, and I understand things can go wrong, we'll talk about that next week, okay? But um, when we make those promises, I'm saying to Jennifer, I promise to, to love you even if you don't deserve it. And you'll love me even when I don't deserve it. I'm not saying I'll, I'll serve you as long as you serve me back. It's an unconditional promise because it's a covenant. I'm going to do this regardless. Okay? Now, where do we get audacious promises like that? Who came up with these? Why would we be so bold to make all these promises at the altar that, frankly, we can't keep? Or at least we don't keep them perfectly. Not a single day in your life, if you're married, have you kept your vows perfectly? Nobody can. Where do they come from then? They come from God. We get them from God because this is how God treats us. That's why we make such audacious promises to one another because they come from God, not just in what God says, but they come from what we know of God's character and what he's done. We're not going to put this on the screen, but I'm going to quote from Ephesians 5 here. Very famous text on marriage. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, here's the basis of the marriage covenant. Listen, he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that Jesus might present to himself the church, us, in all our glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless before him. Do we see what, what, what marital faithfulness is meant to represent here? Sex belongs within the covenant of marriage because we, all of us, both married and single, hear me, all of us belong within the covenant of grace. The marital covenant is meant to be a picture of a greater covenant, the covenant of grace that we have in Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who loved you and gave himself up to die for you so that he might sanctify you and cleanse you from all your sin and give you eternal glory with him that you now forevermore, no matter what you've done, you forevermore, you're holy and blameless in his eyes. The only person whose esteem matters for all eternity the only one my opinion is not going to help you out in heaven i hope you know i can't get you in through the back door okay the only person whose esteem whose opinion matters for all eternity declares you holy and blameless because of what he's done for you that's the covenant that we enjoy as a gift from god jesus doesn't just stamp you for heaven he makes you something new he cleanses you he purifies you and that includes your sexuality That includes your sexuality. Do we see now why God says you cannot enjoy the blessing of sexuality unless it occurs within the blessing of covenant marriage? Because if you single it out, you ruin it. If you single it out, you ruin it. There's no other way to preserve it and to to treat it the way that God created it to be unless it occurs within the context of covenant, right? Just if you tried to separate out anything In the Bible, if you said, well, you know, I like, uh, I don't like Matthew 5, it's too hard. I like John 3, you know, God so loved the world. That's what I like. Well, if you single one out in in favor of the other, you lose it all. You lose the fullness of who Jesus is and what he came to do, right? You can't single it out. And here, here, okay, this is why we can all have hope today. This may not feel like a hopeful sermon. It's certainly a difficult topic. For some of us, it's exceedingly difficult because there is a corrosive reality within our lives and we hate it. And I trust that if you're here, so if you're sitting right here hearing me talk about this, you want it gone. You wish it could be gone. You're not secretly delighting in it and just walking through the motions here. And so there's got, there's got to be hope for us today. And that's true for us as men and as women, uh, young and old, married and single. There's hope for us. Our hope is not trying to get better control over our passions. And I hope you've heard me loud and clear on that. That may be your first instinct. That may be what you feel like is right. That may be advice that you've been given. Dash that right now. You can't get control over your passions. If you, if you cancel out one issue of, your, of sin in your life, there's going to be another sin that pops up in its place. Okay? I'm just telling you right now. Because sin doesn't get dealt with that way. It doesn't, be, it doesn't get solved that way. You can't get control over it. Our hope comes today when we repent. And that word repent means... I am am facing a direction, I'm walking in a certain direction, I'm living a certain way, I'm thinking a certain way, and I now turn. I don't just turn away from the sin because it's wrong and I feel bad about it. I'm turning instead to Jesus. I turn to Christ. I don't turn into a a better ethic of self-control. I'm going to try harder this time. I'm really going to do it this time. You don't turn to that, that will do you no good. You turn to a Savior. You turn to one who purifies and cleanses and can bring transformation to your heart. You turn to Christ. And in that sense, listen, we don't cut passion out of our lives. You've got a misguided passion. It's called lust, okay? It exists. The seeds of it exist in all of our hearts. It's there. It's a misguided passion. It's wrong. It's sinful. You don't have to cut the passion out of your life. You simply redirect it. You redirect your passion. You're, this consuming desire to have, what, how, in, in whatever ways that we have perhaps perverted it, that consuming desire is meant to be directed at Christ. Remember what Paul says, keep seeking the things above, where there is no perversion, where there's only purity and goodness and light, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's a redirection of this, this desperate urge in my heart that drives me to things that I hate, The scripture calls us to turn instead to Christ, that we might find our consuming passion in him. Um, Imagine this. Imagine imagine being so enraptured with something that everything else in your life becomes a non-issue. So in love with something or someone that everything else in your life is just no longer dominant to you. That's what Jesus says it's like when we come to him, that we discover a treasure of such great worth that we'd be willing to get rid of everything we have in order to possess it. The answer to our lust problem is not, stop it. The answer to the lust problem is, I've got to turn my whole heart to Christ. That's the only solution there is. Easier said than done, I know. But that's the place we have to start. That's the only hope we have. When Jesus says, tear out your eye, cut off your hand, I hope we take those extremes to heart, I I hope we see the seriousness of what he's saying. But we know in the end he's not being literal. That's our saving grace for today, y'all. He's not being literal. Um, But Jesus, uh, in other places, was quite literal. One day Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised again. That was not hyperbole. That was literal. That Jesus Christ himself, he suffered extremely. Far worse than losing an eye or a hand, Jesus suffered. And you know why? He suffered so that we might be forgiven. He suffered and died so that we might be purified and cleansed. This is not a self-help project. You can't do this and neither can I. And that's why Jesus laid himself down on that cross on your behalf. He suffered. He suffered the hell that my lust deserved so that I would not endure the the eternity of hell myself. He suffered it for me. He took my condemnation for me so that he might purify me and give me life in its place. And he's done that for you too. And that's why I say that you can have hope today. Jesus Christ didn't just die. He was raised. That's what he says. He predicted it before it happened. On the third day, he will be raised again. That means that when Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, it proved his victory. It proved the fact that he was God in human form. It proved the fact that now and forevermore, there is life to be found in him and that life is not just heaven one day. It's life that we're given today because the victory over sin and death has been won and it is now ours to live in. Y'all, that's the reality in which we live. You may, be, you may be absolutely consumed where you sit with what we've been talking about today. There's hope for you. Do not resign yourself to defeat. There's hope for you because of what Jesus Christ has done. There's hope. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this is an issue, and we acknowledge it right now. This is an issue beyond our resources. We've all tried to do better. We've all promised we'd never do it again. We've all felt the guilt and shame, and and, and, and it's possible, Lord, that we've experienced broken relationship, broken marriage because of this sin. And so, Lord, we know this well. This is not a theory. We know it. And I pray today, Lord, that we see the seriousness of it. Our culture parades it. Jesus, you do not. You condemn it. And I hope we see why. That it, it, it this issue, Father God, you, you, you show us, this, it perverts every good thing you created our sexuality to be. And so, Lord, let us appreciate that reality so that our hunger for, our desire for lust, Lord, that we would see it as a detestable thing. It's not a good thing. It's not a victimless crime. But Father, that's not enough for us that we hate it. It's not enough for us that we know it's wrong. Father, show us the wonderful love of Jesus Christ who didn't just condemn lust, but he was condemned for that lust. He died for our sins so that we now might know his grace and that we on this earth, as we walk on this earth, that we might be changed. And so Lord, I pray this this morning that if, if, uh, if, it's, if anyone in this room is consumed with lust or any sin for that matter and we've not turned to you, Jesus, as the solution, as our hope, as our salvation, and I pray that, that, that we would do that right now. That we would turn to you, Jesus, and trust you. There's nothing to earn. There's nothing for us to do. We trust you that your death and your resurrection accomplish our eternal forgiveness and you now change our hearts. Father, we all need that today. And Lord, we ask it, I pray that we ask it with a burdened heart. We don't want this. We don't want it for our children. We don't want it for ourselves. We don't want it for our church. And, Lord, we don't want it for our world. And so, Lord, I pray that as you would bring healing to our hearts today and as you, Lord, bring transformation to seek you, to seek you, rather than an idol of the heart, Lord, let it be not just a blessing to us, let it be a blessing to the world. Our, our world desperately needs light in this dark place. Desperately. And so, Lord, let us be light bearers with hearts changed by the, by the, by the preciousness of your grace in the urgency of our repentance. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.